John 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They will know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. May the Lord bless to us the reading and now the preaching of his word. May we give it our full and undivided attention. You can't imagine how stressful it was. The most difficult trial of my life. I'm sure to you, what I did seems unbelievable. I'm sure you're certain that you wouldn't have done it. But you don't know. I tell you this. It's easy to say you'll be faithful under pressure. I told Jesus I would lay down my life for him. I thought I would. Maybe I still will. But when push came to shove, they tied his hands together when they arrested him. It would have been all of us if Jesus hadn't made them admit twice that he was the only one they were authorized to take. He was bound so that the rest of us could go free. I hated this idea. I wanted to fight for him. I landed one good blow on the high priest's servant. But Jesus refused to fight. He didn't want to fight. He wanted to give himself up for us. And so I just stood there in shame as he healed the man's ear. Then they bound his hands to take him away. Most of the guys scattered, but I wasn't going to let Jesus out of my sight. Once they were ahead of me, a safe distance, I started following. And that's when I saw John, who had the same idea. 
The Jewish officials and Roman auxiliaries walked together for a while, but once it became clear that Jesus was alone and he was no threat, the soldiers returned to Antonia. He was the Jewish officer's prisoner now, and it didn't take long for John to figure out where they were taking him. I'd never seen the place, but John knew his way around. It seemed odd to me, given what I knew about his background, but he didn't hesitate just to walk right through the entrance into the courtyard. And some of the people there knew him, of him. The palace, of course, belongs to the high priest's families. While the Roman government said Caiaphas was the high priest, and he was, Annas, his father-in-law, was still the one who called the shots with the Sanhedrin. The Romans had removed Annas from the role of high priest earlier, but they'd wasted their time. Nearly all of the men who followed him as high priest were either his sons or now Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And they lived in different wings of this palace, the whole compound, a display of, of lavish excess. You can't imagine how wealthy this family was. Annas was so notorious for his greed and extravagance. And they lived in this, this faux royal palace, a giant house, or really several houses combined with a courtyard in the middle. And the gate into the courtyard had an attendant checking everyone who came and went. And that's where I thought we would have to stop following, but John just walked right on through. And he came back and he said something to the servant girl who was attending the gate. And she let me into the courtyard as well. Now I stopped there, but John, he just went right on into the house, right into the room where Annas would be questioning Jesus. Later, when he heard about what happened to me, John felt terrible for leaving me on my own out there. It's like he felt partially responsible for what I did. And whenever he told others the story about that night, he told it with such sympathy. And he always told them about my restoration. After he went inside, I felt out of place. What was I doing here? The servant girl at the gate, she could tell. She'd been suspicious of me from the beginning. And after John went in without me, she wouldn't stop watching me. I guess her shift was ending, and before she left, she came over to question me, and I was terrified. I didn't know what she was going to do. I'm out there alone with a bunch of strangers. My adrenaline still pumping from what happened in the garden. And then following Jesus here, I'm standing in the courtyard of the high priest's house. Who knows what will happen to me next? And all of this was racing through my mind. And she asked really aggressively, you're not one of his disciples, are you? The way she said it took me by surprise. She knew I was. She'd seen me come in with John. And her question was, was worded like an accusation. I didn't intend to lie to her. It was all so sudden. It felt almost out of body as I heard myself denying. No, I, I'm not. I'm not. Those words still give me chills today. Jesus forgives my sin, of course, by faith, all my sin. But what a moment for the sin of unbelief. 
I didn't trust that I would be safe in obedience. I tried to protect myself because I didn't trust that God would. I'm not making excuses. It was sin, but but haven't you experienced the unbelief of fear? After that first denial, not that I was counting them, all I wanted to do was get out of there. I started for the archway to escape the courtyard, to catch my breath somewhere alone. But there was a crowd out there too. And one girl in the crowd was talking about me as I approached. I heard her tell the others that she had seen me with Jesus. I didn't know what they would do with that information. But I couldn't go out there past them. I couldn't leave without arousing even more suspicion. So I just told them, I don't know him, and turned back around into the courtyard. I don't know him. Could anything be further from the truth? I did know him. I knew him because he knew me first. I knew him because I heard his voice when he called me to himself and I followed it. I knew him. He is Christ, the son of the living God. Of course I know him. They should know him too. That's what I should have said. When I got back inside the courtyard, I just wanted to blend in. I just wanted to disappear. It was a pretty cold night. Some people were warming themselves by a little fire they'd made. I walked over to them with my head down and tried to get myself warm. But I just couldn't blend in enough. We'd been there about an hour at this point. By now, everyone was talking about me. I could see the pointing. I could hear the whispers. Why was everyone so concerned about me anyway? Jesus is just inside that house. Jesus is inside that house on trial. The greatest injustice of all time is taking place, and they're paying attention to me. Ridiculous. He's on trial in there just like I am out here. And eventually the talking about me gave way to talking to me. You're not also one of his disciples, are you? That's what the guy said to me. I was so tired of hearing that question. It's not like I could change my story by now. I'm not, I said, and I kept looking down. And then another guy chimes in, claiming that he saw me in the garden with Jesus. Of course, he had. I found out later he had a good reason to remember my face. Malchus, the guy whose ear I cut off, this guy was family. Of course he recognized me. But I told him what I told all the others. I don't know him. I denied it all. It was the rooster crowing that hit me like a ton of bricks. I couldn't believe it. Just like he said it would happen. Jesus is never wrong, but I still couldn't believe it. I told him I'd die for him. And three times in one night, all I cared about was saving myself. I denied my love for him, and more importantly, I denied his love for me. Looking back, it was far from my most difficult trial. And that I failed so spectacularly shows just how little I could do in my own strength. In telling the story this morning from Peter's perspective, we skip over verses 19 through 24. But John creates dramatic tension by moving back and forth. 
between Peter's experience outside and what's happening to Jesus inside. Peter's denials of the truth seem even more out of place when juxtaposed against Jesus' commitment to the truth at such great cost. And emotionally, as Jesus is suffering the offense and injustice of these sham trials, he's also acutely aware that one of his closest disciples is denying that he knows him. One scholar notes that John's telling of these events in comparison to the other Gospels is leaner. It's quietly veiled. And the effect is to emphasize the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter and to make it clear that Peter cannot follow Jesus until Jesus has died for Peter. Last week I mentioned that Jesus would have to endure two trials, one before the Jews and one before the Romans. What John summarizes here is the trial before the Jews. It begins with this preliminary hearing before Annas. No doubt he's taken to Annas first because Annas is the one who really calls the shots. And Caiaphas needs time to get the Sanhedrin together anyway. It is the middle of the night. And so while those men are being assembled to Caiaphas for the official trial, Jesus is first taken to Annas to see what he can get out of him. He asks Jesus about two issues. That's verse 19, his disciples and his teaching. And on one level, he's looking to satisfy his curiosity. How popular is Jesus? How many people are following him? And what is he saying that's enticing them to follow? And the answers to these questions could also offer some incriminating evidence. If Jesus admits to a teaching that he and the Father are one, that will be called evidence of blasphemy. If he admits that his many disciples are opposed to the Roman government, that will be called evidence of treason. Just the thing that will get Jesus convicted before Pilate. But Annas won't get what he's looking for from Jesus because Jesus is innocent. A great tragedy of this whole situation is that he who is perfectly righteous is examined and convicted by men who are perfectly guilty and have unjust and evil in their hearts. That's another reason why John's interweaving of the trials of Jesus and Peter is so powerful. Another pastor writes, For the spotlessly holy one to be before such wicked scoundrels, that was suffering. And in the courtyard stood a man for whom Jesus suffered all this. And that man was saying again and again that he had never heard of Jesus. While Peter denies the truth, Jesus testifies to it. The answer to Anna's question is that there is no secret teaching for Jesus' insiders. He is always taught consistently. What he says in private is the same theology as he says in public. Unlike the religious rulers with their secret meetings and nighttime trials, anyone had been able to come and see what Jesus was about. At a lawful trial, the accused is not supposed to be asked to testify against himself. Since Annas wants to know what Jesus has been teaching, Jesus encourages him to go find some witnesses, some people who listen to his teaching and receive their testimony. That's what the law requires of a trial anyway. At this point, theologically and judicially embarrassing for Annas is why the servant strikes Jesus. 
One scholar calls him a miserable underling seeking to exploit the situation for his own petty advantage. This is his chance to look good in front of the boss. Kids, this will be a real temptation in life. Moments like this can make you feel important by being on the side of the strong rather than on the side that is right. There's an expression, might makes right. It means that the person with the power gets to make the rules, even if the rules are unjust and wrong. That's what high priests like Annas and Caiaphas tried to do. That's what the Sanhedrin will do with Jesus. They think that because they want something to be true, and because they have the power to make others pretend that it's true, that it actually becomes true. The assistant to Caiaphas isn't thinking about what's right and what's wrong at all. He's thinking about what will make him popular with the powerful people. This trial breaks all kinds of laws about justice, but he'll go along with it anyway. Jesus was right that witnesses were required. This man knows that, but he thinks that if he strikes Jesus for saying it, he'll get a chance to impress the high priest. Then he'll really be somebody. When there's a controversy around us, we will be tempted to care less about what side is right and more about what side we think is going to win. That's the point Jesus makes to the officer in verse 23. Today, the phrase is being on the wrong side of history. That phrase is used to intimidate people to go along with whatever idea is popular rather than what idea is right. Individuals, churches, Denominations are now frequently failing to stand up for the truth. They're following Peter rather than Jesus because they'd rather be in the majority. Christians should not decide what is right based on straw polls or the voting of overtures. In fact, Christians don't decide what is right at all. God, by his holy perfection, decided what was right. We discern what is right and what is wrong as he instructs us and as we learn from his word and his way. When we care more about abiding with Christ than the approval of the world, we will have the courage to choose what is right rather than what is popular. Jesus, committed to that truth, won't give Annas what he's looking for. The Sanhedrin is ready for trial, so Jesus is sent over to Caiaphas. The high priests, the elders, the scribes, this supreme Jewish judiciary council gathers to conduct a trial that violates just about every rule of Jewish criminal procedure. You aren't allowed to try somebody for a death penalty crime at night, but here they go. You aren't allowed to try somebody who was arrested through the use of a bribe. But here we go. A trial has to have witnesses. You aren't allowed to ask a defendant to incriminate himself. And when you do find someone guilty and you want the death penalty, Jewish law requires at least one day between the conviction and the sentence. These rules had long been in place to prevent exactly this kind of railroading. But this trial wasn't about the rules. 
This trial wasn't even about the crime. There was no crime. This trial was about the jealousy and hate the religious rulers had toward Jesus and their willingness to do whatever it took to get what they wanted. Long ago, they had determined to put him to death, and no legal technicalities were going to stop their murderous intent. This trial ended sometime around 3 in the morning on Friday. Jesus was held in captivity until the very first light of daybreak, and the Sanhedrin reconvened to pronounce their judgment. They wanted to pretend that the one in daylight was the real trial to lend some credibility as they send Jesus over to Pilate. You see, they had to. The Roman authorities allowed the Sanhedrin to convict criminals of capital crimes, but not to execute that sentence. They couldn't put Jesus to death. They could sentence him to death, but if they wanted Jesus crucified, they need the cooperation of the Roman government in this scheme. And having faced down Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, next Jesus is sent to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Peter's denials, his mini-trial, and Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities are recorded in all four Gospels. John weaves them together in a very unique way, prompting us to consider with fresh eyes each in light of the other. This approach gives added dimension to the depth of Jesus' humiliation, doesn't it? On trial at all, on trial before these wicked men claiming that he is guilty. This approach gives added depth to Peter's denials. The way Peter rejects the truth as Jesus is affirming it. The complexity of what's happening in Peter's mind and the tragedy of how it unfolds. We're repulsed by it. But can't we see ourselves in his shoes? Placed in the same position under the same circumstances, would we have done otherwise? But here's the thing. We don't live under the same circumstances. Neither did Peter after Christ's resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. Peter planned to lay down his life for Jesus by his own strength. And that Peter and that plan utterly failed Christ. He failed by attacking the guard, trying to replace Jesus' plan with his own. He failed by denying Christ before others, caring about his own safety and believing he was the only one who could provide it. But that was Peter pre-Pentecost. When Peter would later endeavor to do all manner of difficult service for Jesus, he would do it not by his own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a very different story, isn't it? It's the story of the epistles. It's the story of the New Testament. Apart from the vine, Peter could do nothing. Through the spirit of Christ, through Christ who gave him strength, Peter could do all things even unto death. We face the temptation to deny Christ. Usually not in dramatic ways, but in very subtle ways we face the temptation to deny Christ with some regularity. 
But by the Spirit, we abide in Christ. We face the same temptation like Anna's servant to do whatever it takes to be a part of the in crowd, to be accepted by the world. But by the Spirit of Christ, we find full acceptance in Christ. We don't need the world's approval. We have God's. We even face the temptation, like the Sanhedrin, to try and control our futures through schemes and manipulations. By the Spirit, we entrust our future to the one who secured our lives by his death. We don't have to be in control when we believe that he is the one who is. In his death, Christ secured our forgiveness for failures like Peter's. And he secured our power for successes in faith like Peter's. So confess your failures. Claim your forgiveness. And take hold of the power to stand with Christ in the truth in all of your trials. Abide with him. 